0: Hey, y'all. Welcome back to another episode of the Crude Audacity podcast, the podcast dedicated to talking shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. As always, I'm your host, Catherine Mills. I'm a reservoir engineer with a focus on advanced characterization. Today, we will be talking about everyone's favorite subject, money. (laughs) And I get it. We all have budgets. We have AFEs. We have decline curves. We have B factors. We have you know getting the best ip getting the best boe per foot we all have goals right however few of us are actually in the room when funding negotiations are being made few of us are actually following the flow of money throughout the oil field and few of us are actually leading any of these negotiations and let's face it right now in these times if you're in the red no one is immune so today our influencer is here to take the mystery out of the bottom line Having started her career in Purdue Bay, she has overseen drilling and completion operations all across the lower 48. She not only follows the money, but she has approved the kickoff. Amanda Rubel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Well, I know we're gonna get into some meat of it today. One thing I found when preparing for this podcast was that as many people have a good idea of what private equity, Wall Street, private investors actually provide to our industry and mean for our industry when you ask them what would you like to know they all kind of look at you a little blank
1: (laughs) yeah totally i was i've been in that boat before as well
0: well it seems that as much as we understand that that's where the money comes from and there's some sort of bottom line we have to hit not everyone really knows what's going on or how those decisions are made from upper management it seems to stay in its own little behind closed doors conference room quite Mm -hmm. a bit but before we jump into that, you have had such a unique career. You really, you've really you been in industry for about a decade now. You really focused on drilling and completions, which 10 years ago, women really weren't doing. And yes, I get it before anyone tweets me. We were going through the process of becoming chemical engineers, reservoir engineers, working on production. But I mean, you have built yourself up into the head of drilling and completions. And you don't see that with a lot of women these days. So, before we get into the money, how did you start yourself in all this? Where did you begin? How did you know that you wanted to begin as a drilling engineer?
1: So, so my background, um, really, and this probably is going to come up more than once, but uh, a lot of it's been kicked off with my dad. Uh, my dad's in oil and gas as well. Uh, he started with Schlumberger and was there for about 10 years before leaving the company to go work for himself, and that was. Shortly after I was born, so I have lots of memories growing up of my dad working on pumping units. And you know, when we'd stay home sick, we wouldn't stay home. We'd drive out to the field with dad. And oh, so, so you went with them? <laughs> so we went with them. Yeah. And so I have I have these memories, and you know, of, of him kind of knowing all his guys, working with his guys, working with his hands. Um, The smell of, you know, diesel and dirt and coffee is kind of Mm -hmm. what I associate with my dad's truck and that sort of thing. So
0: that's the smell of oil and gas. Yeah, it's kind of (laughs) it's kind
1: of our world, right? So I think I I grew up seeing a lot of that. And obviously, you know, I'm I'm close with both my parents and look up look up to them both very much. But so when I uh, was looking to go to college, my dad really encouraged me to go to Colorado School of Mines. Um, He's an engineer as well. He's an electrical engineer from CU. Um, I had big aspirations to play Division I volleyball somewhere far, far away, and he encouraged me that uh, being an engineer would be something that I would always be able to kind of put food on the table and, and that I was someone that should be doing something like that. that
0: afford your passions. That, yeah, that kind of chase
1: that. And so I started at Mines. I actually started in, as a geological engineer. What? Um, yes. Once I discovered <laughs> that I was going to have to do, you know, eight years or more of school in order to work in the industry, I approached my dad and said, yeah, I don't think this is really what I want to do. I want to do what you want to do. My dad, who has weathered the boom and bust cycle a few times, really encouraged me, you know, not maybe not too strongly, but he he warned me about mm-hmm how up and down petroleum could be, but he said, that's the way I should go if I wanted to do the work that he did, so. Brace yourself. (laughs) Yep, so so made that change, really dove in, um, had such a great program and and a great set of professors and colleagues at the school. I did have a couple internships uh, between My, uh, I guess, sophomore and junior years, Um, those internships were focused primarily on production and reservoir, as Mm -hmm. I know is your current passion (laughs) and following, and uh, neither of those really struck me. So Mm -hmm. when I uh, left college, I went to work for BP Alaska uh, up in Anchorage, which actually is... So fucking cool. I'm sorry. So fucking cool. I love it. And that was actually, that was another dad encouragement. I had, I, I graduated in 2007 and the business was healthy, so I was fortunate enough to have a few opportunities and I was born in Alaska because dad worked for Schlumberger up there at the time. And oh. so we moved when I was a baby, so I'm not allowed to claim it. And therefore I can't claim Colorado's native, which is a whole nother conversation. <laughs> but, um, so, but I had an offer to go back to Alaska and my dad said, you know, I think it's okay to pick your first job based on where you want to live. And
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Thanks let, for the approval. Yeah.
1: Thanks for the approval. i I still call my dad for career advice, for <laughs> accounting advice, for all of all of that kind of stuff. He's still my kind of number one phone call, but so moved to Alaska, um, BP, like a lot of other big companies, they do a program for some of their new engineers mm-hmm. where you rotate through a few disciplines. Yeah. But, um, I wanted to start in drilling and, and I really just fell in love with it. I think what I love about operations and, and at the time, and, and, and certainly in Prudhoe, which is very conventional. So we, we don't, or they are now, but at the time we weren't doing a lot of fracks or anything. So you kind of did the completion as well, which is mm-hmm. primarily running tubing and, and sleeves and that kind of thing. Not... Nothing like what not we like see the, now. Yeah, not like the big fracks no, in Texas. None of that kind of stuff. So, but I really fell in love with operations because for me, what's hard about reservoir, and I worked with Petrel in my internship, and I just, <laughs> I did just the the rotating of polygons and the guesstimating and the it, it just didn't, I, I didn't it connect didn't with it. Strike you? <laughs> I think what I love so much about operations is it's so tangible. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a beginning an end. You know, if you are doing well right away, there's yeah. not a there's not a 10 to 20 year, you know, uh, forecast that you're, that you're trying (laughs) to hit or that you're falling behind and you're sort of figuring out where you stand. You really know day in, day out Mm -hmm. if if you're doing well or not. Um, I also love that a lot of the operations, whether it's a drilling rig or a frat crew, or just, you know, a few people running compressors out in the field, you kind of have a team Mm -hmm. and I, you know, it's, it's almost this bubble of, of people that Everyone on location is kind of a unit, and you're all working together towards a common goal, even though you have separate and individual specialties. You you all have a bigger picture that you're you're working towards, and I've, I'm really attracted to that as well. And BP was a really great place to start. Alaska was wonderful. Um, I got to do so many cool things. We did multilateral projects. We did these really expensive chrome multi-zone injector completions. Um, we did coiled tubing drilling, which. At the time, I was convinced it was going to be the future. And then, you know, that (laughs) economics thing came into play. When you work for a big company, I I remember talking to my dad because he's working for himself. And he would ask how much we spent on cement or something like that and was just aghast at the numbers. And to me, I was like, well, that's just what it costs, right? That's just what it is. Right, because I was so far from the bottom line. But it was was such a great opportunity. And I got to rotate through various uh, types of drilling. And then I also got to work on the slope Um, so we're based in Anchorage, Mm -hmm. Uh, anyone not familiar with Prudhoe, but the North slope is that Northern, uh, portion of Alaska that runs right along the bay there. And so I actually got to work nights there and, and, you know, kind of quote, unquote, be in charge. Right. And, and it was, that is so
0: cool. So many people try so hard these days to get up there.
1: It's, it's really, no, it was cool. And it was again, a great opportunity because allegedly I was running the operation, but every person else there had been doing their jobs longer than I'd been alive. Mm -hmm. So there was no, in my opinion, there was no, um. (laughs) There was no illusion that I was really making the calls, you know. <laughs> and that, and again and and I, again from my dad, his his big piece of advice from working in the field was to take those guys's um, perspective, perspectives into account. I think the fatal flaw for many engineers is that we come out of college and by God we know everything. We and know everything. We know. And hey, I've got this textbook, and so I'm just going to work <laughs> from this, and you're going to listen to me and follow. And and these guys know. You know, you've got a tool pusher on a rig who's been doing it for thirty, forty years. He knows you don't know the yeah, right answer. exactly. That's and just
0: that's the secret, that's right? The they secret. know. They know. That we don't know.
1: And, and so, and they are so interested in teaching you. Mm-hmm. and They are so interested in in problem solving. And and you will get so much further if you approach them with curiosity and respect, and say, "Hey, we've got a little bit of a problem. You know, we're, we have losses." What do you think we should pump? How much? Whatever, whatever mm-hmm. those metrics are, and those guys want to share their experience. But if you come in the room with your textbook waving and, and say, "Hey, I just have a freshly minted degree, and, and by God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna run it," you know that <laughs> tends to alienate people. So I just thought that was it a gets lot. Get your butt whooped. <laughs> yes, it does, or or ignored, which can actually be much worse. Much worse. Mm-hmm. No,
0: some of the best things my dad ever did was make me drive around with pumpers, yep. and you learned so much because it's always a generational thing. They've been their granddaddy used to work that field. Yep. So totally (laughs) totally you can learn a lot from those guys well what about um so you ended up leaving bp you came Mm -hmm. down to the 48 so what about that process so um there's a bit
1: of a history probably of uh, add in my career it certainly looks like it i think (laughs) i get i get kind of stir crazy uh bp like i said was fantastic i'd been there for about three and a half years and Uh, that was shortly after Macondo. Uh, And so the uh, part of the plan of working for BP was the opportunity to go overseas. And Mm -hmm. after that disaster, um, they froze all of our drilling operations and people. And so it looked like that opportunity was kind of getting further and further away down the path. And I was getting a little, you know, a little itchy. So what's next? (laughs) What's next? We got to try something different. And I also at the time really wanted to start potentially working for a smaller company. And at that time, the smaller company was El Paso, which is hilarious now that I look back at it, but it seemed like a much smaller option than than the the behemoth that was BP. I moved to Denver uh, shortly after El Paso divested, or I guess split between their E&P and their midstream company. So the company wanted to move everybody to Houston. Um, You know, Most local Coloradans were a bit resistant to that. The business was healthy. Yeah, you know, a lot of us, I actually did my time in Houston as an intern, so it was a brief two to three months instead of, you know, a few decades, but it's all it took you. Yeah, never again. Yeah. But they, they were very generous with uh, those of us who chose to, to not stay with the company. And I found an opportunity with inner plus. Okay. Um, I moved to Pennsylvania shortly thereafter. And again, working kind of for a smaller and smaller company, um, worked in Pennsylvania, working that asset. We just had one rig, which was a much different shift from how the did BP. you actually
0: like going to Pennsylvania? You know, I love the it area. Was, it was
1: fun. My, my philosophy and it's changed a little bit now as, as I've, as I've gotten older, but and again, my dad, um, he, <laughs> he told me for many, many years that um, if, you know, to gain the experience you needed, you just go anywhere you need to go. I mean, I looked at jobs in Tulsa and Longview mm-hmm. and, you know, my thinking was that if it was the right opportunity and if I was going to learn and grow and I had to live in some awful place, then I was going to live in some awful place. Mm-hmm. And my tolerance for being in awful places has, has reduced a bit as I've grown older, but Um, you know, when I was when I was in my twenties, certainly that was that was my philosophy Mm -hmm. and that's been my advice for other young engineers. I'm like, you know just go. You just gotta go. Experience is what matters. You can you can live next door to uh, you know, to some gentrified community with a beautiful pizza shop or something later. Like now is the time to (laughs) to stretch yourself and to be uncomfortable and and to be in those places. So so moving to Pennsylvania certainly was not was not challenging in that no. respect. I was willing. Pennsylvania is gorgeous. Pennsylvania gorgeous. But it's gorgeous. a whole different beast it's than what's a, out here. Yes. And then culturally it's very different. Yeah. Um, and you know, the oil field i found is received differently in, in a variety of states. Mm-hmm. The way it's received in Alaska and Texas is very different from Wyoming, very different from Colorado. Uh, West Virginia and Pennsylvania <laughs> are, again, completely different animals. So that was a fairly short experience. Um, we slowed down our rig program largely due to gas prices. Yeah. And I made another change. Um, and I had a couple people tell me that I should go consulting. And at the time, I was like 27 or 28, so I felt that I was far too young and inexperienced to be anything good as a consultant. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of found went through a few connections and I knew a guy who knew a guy who'd been running (laughs) consultants for a number of years and he took a chance on me and he said why don't you come down here for a couple weeks and if you're worth anything we'll know um and (laughs) the biggest problem for me was that he was uh, running completions consultants and this was in 2011 and 12 so so fracking was now a thing yeah and I'd been doing the drilling thing and then handing off to uh uh, my completion engineer in, in Pennsylvania to handle it. Mm-hmm. So I spent the last kind of month of my work there and of my time there calling up people who would be willing to let me come out and sit a frack. Yeah. And, and just watch. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was so struck, you know, we're kind of talking about money today. I was so struck on that first frack that I went out to look at because the pumps were quiet, it was between stages. So it's really, really quiet on location. And on a rig, when it's quiet on location, it means something's broken.
0: Something's wrong. And
1: you are throwing away money by the minute, right? You've got these spread rates, you're on rental. If you're not productive, you're throwing away money. And on, I went out to that job and everybody seemed very relaxed and I didn't understand <laughs> why. I was like, surely you guys are on nonproductive time. What's going on? And I learned that, uh, you know, you only get charged while you're pumping, right? On a completion. So the money is being spent as the pumps are running. So mm-hmm. if things are quiet, it's downtime or it's wireline or whatever, and it's totally normal. So, you know, a lot of, there are many, many differences between the two disciplines. And, but I was fortunate to get to see some of that mm-hmm. um, ahead of heading down to West Texas. And I had such an incredible opportunity uh, with that consulting firm uh really launched into working uh two weeks on two weeks off we worked midland basin projects that's Tracks, uh, awesome. drill outs workovers uh production installs we actually did a little bit of exploration work uh, for Repsol on the slope really and again you know kind of relationships and because I'd worked in in uh, Alaska previously mm-hmm. I got tapped for that work so I got to see yeah. some of that and really I can't overstate how how incredible that opportunity was for me because I got to interface with With all the field guys and most of them most of the other consultants were guys that had worked their way up through frack fleets or through coil units or whatever and Mm -hmm. and then um, the guys that i was working for had snapped them up because they had leadership skills and some competency qualities and you had these guys that had been fracking for 15 years and I got to sit next to them while I was learning how to call stages and do some of that. That
0: is amazing. (laughs) It was, it was
1: really incredible and it was a lot of fun. And, and many of those guys are still close friends of mine. And, and more importantly, from a professional standpoint, if I've got a problem with Whatever I'm doing, mm-hmm. I have people that I can call, and I take a picture of a treatment chart and go, "Hey, have you seen this before? What do we try?" You know, yeah, that sort of thing. So that was that was really that was really incredible, and, and getting to be in the Midland Basin in you know 2012 through about 14, when things were really
0: when all the fun stuff was happening, all, yeah, <laughs> and everybody
1: you know, and oil was a thousand dollars a barrel, and I, you know, I other those days, do you, yeah, yeah, everybody, everybody, you, you could do no wrong, you know. High exactly. tides raise all boats, and so everybody was crushing it, and so it was really fun to be part of that experience. Um, and then finally in late 2014, I, you know, the field's amazing, but it is, it is a challenging lifestyle Mm -hmm. and there's just, you know, you can plan your workouts and your meals and whatnot, but it, it's hard on your, your mind and body. There's no question about it. I admire the guys who have absolutely made a life out of it, but I hit a point where I I needed a little bit of a change in my life. And I also really wanted to see more of the big picture Mm -hmm. when you're consulting and you're on days off and you text the guys and you say, Hey, how'd that well come on or, you know, people go, why do you care? Like, are you supposed to be vacationing right now? And so I really wanted to get the bigger picture. You want to be
0: back in the meat of it. Yeah, I
1: wanted to be back in the meat of it. So, and I found a great opportunity and this is when, you know, kind of to your point about people's questions, um, I new private equity is sort of this sort of enigma kind of mm-hmm. company, but well, it was
0: kind of getting going. It was kind of getting day. going.
1: It, you had a lot of people finding success with two guys in a cell phone, you know, exactly. people, a geologist and an engineer, or an engineer and a finance guy or whatever. And they put together some money and they had a package of acreage. And, and it
0: became this sort of like golden silver lining on that potential, <laughs> potential opportunity. Absolutely.
1: absolutely. I remember coming out of college and I remember that if, if you had worked overseas, if you could get international, then you had kind of stamped your, your exactly. professional passport. That was all you needed, you could go anywhere. And then in 13, 14, my impression, at least from the inside, was that you needed to go work for some of those small companies and mm-hmm. those private equity firms. And then that was that was the cutting edge and that was that was where the meat of it was. So um, I was lucky to find an opportunity with an outfit called Eris. Uh, we worked in the Delaware Basin, uh, Denver-based. Mm-hmm. And we were a pro- portfolio company for the company I work for currently, which is Cambridge Energy. Mm-hmm. And Cambridge Energy is actually a private equity fund um, and you know we're sort of a hybrid between some of the big firms that have multiple portfolio companies. We don't actually work with management teams, mm-hmm. but we are the management team. Mm-hmm. So um, our, our office and our team in New York does the primary fundraising and then our office here in Denver deploys capital and does the operations. So uh, I entered the company basically through Aris in 2014. We were working in the Delaware, de-risking our acreage. Uh, we ultimately sold our position to PDC mm-hmm. in late 2016. And then I was with PDC briefly sort of as a transition team member yeah. and then returned back to Cambridge. So I've kind of, I've worked for, um, ever smaller companies. I have a, a friend of mine that I worked at BP with, and he told me when I left BP, again, I thought I was going to work for a very tiny company called El Paso, <laughs> but he said, you know, you either, um, you either get to be the tail of the lion or the head of the mouse and the idea is sort of, you know, in a big firm, you're the small cog and, mm-hmm. and a big machine and you have a very specialized role, but in a small firm, you're a lar- lot larger, larger piece of it. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there, it takes all kinds. And some people are, are built to work, you know, a very specialized function within large organizations. And you need those guys to be making moves. And I tend to enjoy seeing a little bit more of something that's really small. Mm-hmm. So it's been a, it's been a very, a very, very fortunate ride. I've, every time I've decided that it was time to make a change, there's been something available for me to change to. And in our business of up and downs, I know that that's not been the case for everyone.
0: But you also just decided to go back to school. Didn't you just wrap it up with your master's? Yes,
1: that's correct. So I I graduated in August. It was an 18-month program Uh, as the executive MBA from Daniels College of Business, which is at University of Denver, also Mm -hmm. here locally.
0: So why did you choose that to complement your current background?
1: um, And again, this theme keeps coming up, but my dad has always encouraged me to go back and, and to school, my mom's an educator, and she was a teacher for over 30 years. So, in in my household, you know, continuing to learn and grow has been a theme, mm-hmm. uh, whether that be formally or informally. And so, I've meant to go back and get my MBA. For a decade, I know that the way that MBAs are perceived has certainly changed in the mm-hmm. last 10 to 20 years. I think it used to be that you really absolutely had to have it yes. in order to ascend through the ranks of the C suite. Um, I think that that's changing a little bit, uh, but that was still on my, kind of on my, on my punch list. And mm-hmm. so I found this program uh, a couple years ago, I guess now, and impulsively just <laughs> uh, enrolled and, and signed up for it. And it was incredible. Um, it was, it was 18 months and you can do about anything for 18 months. Yeah, uh, It definitely adds a lot of, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of time. Like there's, <laughs> there's no, there's no in or out about that. Uh, but you know, you look at the people around you and, and as, and as much as I travel to the field, A lot of the guys would travel overseas on a weekly basis for, Mm -hmm. for their own schedules and people are trying to raise kids and whatnot. And my biggest trouble was that no one else helped me out with the laundry or the groceries. Right. (laughs) So it's, so from my perspective, it was, it certainly took a lot of time, but it was absolutely worth it. I met some really incredible people. Um, you know, we, we work in our own bubbles and that's by industry or by discipline, but for the last, I guess it's almost been 13 years now. I've really been focused on the oil and gas business. And mm-hmm. I love our business. I love our industry. Um, but getting to expand your view a little bit and talk yeah. to people that are thinking about other things, learning about marketing, learning about more about finance and accounting than exactly. I ever thought I'd need, really helped to uh, help me to see a different angle of my industry mm-hmm. and of how I work and how, how our industry works and hopefully uh, showed me some ways in which I can improve it.
0: Business first, engineering yeah. second. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. Well, people forget that. It's kind of surprising. But to that point, um, so you've got your MBA, you have the engineering background. Back to the original statement, everyone seems to understand where the money comes from, but they don't understand how the money works. So can you Mm -hmm. take us through what you've seen? What is a private equity strategy? What's the Wall Street strategy? What's the private investor strategy to help kind of clear up those fundamental uh questions that some people will have right
1: and I'll, I'll caveat here i'm not in any way shape or form an expert on this topic and, no. and i'm probably going to give you the layman's way of saying it so i don't have a twitter or anything like that but i i <laughs> please forgive me if i misspeak instead of they'll that. find you on linkedin they'll, they'll find me somehow <laughs> they always do um, so, you know, my, my perception of it and the way that we've really worked it is it's a different source of capital, right, which mm-hmm. I think is sort of the piece that people know. And, and some of the big names like uh, like the NGPs, the Quantums of the World, mm-hmm. right, they, they find management teams and, um, you know, through, throughout their terms, whether it be that management team's background, they might have access to a certain acreage package or mm-hmm. a certain set of knowledge. Uh, In the scoop stack that they think nobody else has. And so they go out looking for that funding. Well, that was
0: kind of the original strategy, right? right. You said two guys and a cell phone. Well, they go, they pitch this idea, but they don't have the asset yet. And then private equity or Wall Street comes in and they get the asset. Right.
1: And it's, you know, the the Wall Street guys, the private equity guys, I think, I think uh, my perception is the idea is that the Wall Street guys have the money, but not necessarily the, uh, expertise in oil and gas to mm-hmm. make that asset worth it, and your management team does have that expertise, yes. but they don't have the the financial uh, backing to mm-hmm. be able to do it on their own. And there are some instances of people who do, and, and those those guys have been, you know, popularized and, and be, have become legends. Rest in peace, uh, T Boone Pickens. Yeah, but um, <laughs> so sad. Actually, it's so sad. It, it's our industry turns out some just incredible incredible characters the and the titans and, yes it's the tit-
0: and, it's going to be interesting to see what new titans arise yeah
1: totally and that's that's going to be our generation we've got to become the new titans so <laughs> so but yeah it's um, so you know the two guys in a cell phone and i think the other thing that is that has worked with private equity and part of why it became so attractive is that the the life cycle and the return on your investment is so much shorter and so much larger so rather than working for a public E&P where you're kind of looking at stock price and you're looking mm-hmm. at long-term value return to the company and to your shareholders uh, with private equity, they give you, you know, some number, and they expect to see that number, two to five x, and yeah. and really within two to five years. And so, especially as people were, as the Delaware was really getting discovered, yeah, really, you know, the boom and of shale, the boom of shale, the scoop stack, um, some of the New Mexico stuff. Mm-hmm. As those smaller packages were being picked up here and there, uh, the the private equity folks were able to get their money back in, in large volumes and large returns in a short period of time. As, yeah. As some of the big companies would come in and they'd buy out the two guys with a cell phone <laughs> and the two guys with the cell phone now had you know life-changing wealth and whether or not they wanted to play some more was up to them but mm-hmm. and so that that was really that i think that that was really what popularized sort of the private equity model
0: well it's been glorified but the reality is is that anything anytime you're asking for money it can be a brutal sort of it, road to take well and
1: i think you know it's the buck stops here and all those other all those other sayings i think ultimately the money gets to make the decision and at a, at a public P, you see that a little bit more slowly because you're shareholders and because the structure is different bottom line, right? If you've got, you know, if you're a management company and you've got this, this check that you're, that you're writing for, the people that gave you the money want to know where it's going. Exactly. They want to know why it's costing more for you to drill wells than you said it was going to. <laughs> and as an engineer, you know, one of our fatal flaws, you know, outside of, outside of always thinking we're smarter than people, but we want to focus on the project and we mm-hmm. want to fo- focus on the operation and I want to drill a faster well and I want to have a better frack and, and I, you know, that we want to
0: be the best in the basin, right?
1: Best in the basin and our, our KPIs are very different in terms of how, you know, how, how you're raised in like drilling or completions—it's days versus depth, mm-hmm. it's stages per day, mm-hmm. it's it's those kind of numbers—and so you have to really be able to translate that to the New York metrics and the Wall Street metrics, and they don't really care that the rig's late because you had to get permits to move through a particular, you know, public land. You know, they don't—that that's that's. They don't want to know how the watch works. They want to exactly. know what time it is. Like, and don't so, tell
0: me about the engine. Just drive the car. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. And so I think that that's that's something that I think uh, that's the disclaimer. That's the fine print <laughs> that maybe people don't see. I think it's it's sexy to want to work for yourself. I'm my own boss. I don't I I don't report to anybody. And
0: the truth is, you report to the money. It, absolutely. <laughs> and
1: so I think that that's you know it's. For every success story that we hear about the private equity world and the big numbers and mm-hmm. the companies going public, I think there are, there are far more that um, either didn't have the right asset or didn't have the right team, or you know maybe through no fault of their own, you know things just didn't work out. And so it's there's kind of a cautionary tale in there as well as as much as you know we want to all ring the bell or whatever mm-hmm. and, and and be the winner, but it's there's you kind of you got to you got to know the fine print. You got to know what else is involved with it.
0: Exactly. And we're actually seeing people raise concern about not necessarily the fine the fine print, but we're seeing some disruptors pop up in industry these mm-hmm. days. You know, from a reservoir perspective, you gave us the high end of that P50 decline. Why aren't you making it or spacing analysis? So, what do you think is changing about these strategies for it's not as easy to go get funding. I mm-hmm. have to own an asset before I can even get people to look at me and I need a track record and the track record has changed, or at least right. the qualifications of the track record has changed. So what are you noticing in, from the private equity perspective?
1: Um, I think that's a, that's a great point. I mean, the, we kind of say that you're only as good as your last deal.
0: Yeah, right. right? <laughs> so if
1: you were successful, then it's a lot easier to, to raise money that next go around than if you weren't. Um, the other thing that you have to have going in is your exit strategy. You can't just buy up this acreage because you know that the wells two miles away are barn burners. Like mm-hmm. You have to have a picture of how do we get out of this? You know, how do we how long is it gonna take? Are we gonna sell to someone? If so, who are our buyers? How many how many buyers mm-hmm. are we are we selling to a big public company? Okay, well there's not, you know, a public company within, you know, 17 counties up here. So this isn't a bolt-on position for them. Uh, do we want to get enough acreage in production to eventually go public mm-hmm. and those those are the things you you have to at least have a vision of so going so you have in. to know
0: your buyer before or yeah you have to know your buyer before you even yeah plan
1: absolutely you need to have a, a handful preferably more of realistic potential companies that are going to come in and take you out mm-hmm. you know you don't because it's you know you, you know the public P in the space the, their documentation their their quarterlies their reports their presentations. They're, they're announcing, in some effect, their strategy and their planning. And so yeah. as, as someone who wants to get into the private equity space, you need to be very well educated on you know, not only the price per acre mm-hmm. and not only the challenges locally, but also what else the big guys are doing if the big guys are going to be the ones who come and chomp you up. Mm-hmm. And we've seen a lot of slowdown. I mean, I don't think there's been – there hasn't really been um, an acquisition in that sort of private equity Bought up by public, and, and and I'm kind of thinking the Delaware Midland kind of mm-hmm. that space. Yeah, yeah, that's and, where everybody. is Yeah, that's kind of where right everybody now. is. I think you know that they say that that's kind of where you have to be almost um, as of late. But we're not seeing the uh, the transactions happening as fast as in 2016. It was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It was just they were coming and going. You just couldn't keep track of who was who was making what and how fast. And that's, that's very much quieted. There's a lot of concern, I think, around the market. Our industry is getting hammered right now. There's yeah. geopolitical issues. Well, that... you
0: just saw the headlines that came out. Wall Street has turned its back on shale. Mm-hmm. Well, shale is the Permian Basin. So right. how does that actually affect us? Yeah. What opportunities are out there?
1: Well, and that's that's a good question, and I'm certainly not qualified to answer it. I can <laughs> I can speculate. I don't know
0: that anyone I, is. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think... Pickens just died. Like, he's I the know, only one who can answer We're,
1: it. <laughs> where, where are our gurus? Um, I think the industry has really changed and we've spent, you know, the message used to be about replacing reserves. Right. Mm -hmm. And then currently the message is sort of, or more recently, the message is maintaining production or increasing production. And with prices the way they are, I think you actually have to see a slowdown in activity. Mm -hmm. And that seems to sort of be happening. You are seeing rate count drop, you know, there, there are some of those indications, but the philosophies on which the public EMPs operate and the metrics by which they measure themselves, I think, are changing.
0: Yes, we're and at a pivot point, aren't we're we? At,
1: we're at a pivot point, or we're very close to it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the new metric is going to be, but we've always heralded rig count on, Oh God, thank God, rigs counts up. Right. And our production is up. And I think that that's going to change. I don't think that being the busiest guy in the basin is going to be an indication that you're doing it correctly. Correct. And you know, and, I like and, that. <laughs> and on the reservoir side, like you've talked a lot about infill and, and things like that, you do a lot of research with that. And you know, the, the research and the papers and the, the rhetoric around parent child relationships is massively changing how people are valuing their positions.
0: Well, I think it's turning back to people are realizing that they did it wrong. And it's right. they've spent too much money to get the same result, essentially. Well, and you're seeing right. that come up. You're seeing it in LinkedIn. You're seeing it happen on Twitter. You know, people are starting to say, hey, guess what? You had it wrong. We told you you had it wrong and you chose not to listen to us. Right. So change the KPIs.
1: Well, and I think that, yeah, exactly right. And I think that that's part of why we're getting hammered so hard on Wall Street is that we... We, you know, mm-hmm. I, not me, but like Oil the, gas. Our, our industry. <laughs> Has, has placed valuation on a lot of these, uh, acreage positions and these assets on infill drilling on being able to do,
0: 60,000 know, an acre, right, forty thousand
1: rack acre. and upper and lower, and we're going to do all this kind of thing. And, and so they've, you know, and then you count, calculate mm-hmm. your, you are in your decline curve and you multiply by whatever, how many wells you're going to put exactly. in the section. And then we started drilling those and go, Oh God, like these numbers are not what we thought they were. But
0: it takes five years to actually go back exactly. and say, what's with those numbers. Right. When by that time, everyone's got a new job.
1: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly, and so that's, and so there's there's a definite shift happening right now, mm-hmm. and you know it's certainly affected by the geopolitics, the regulatory environment locally. Yeah, um,
0: we're but, not a supply and demand industry. We are geopolitical. We are we are Twitter led. Right. There there, <laughs> there
1: are so many other factors that go into it, mm-hmm. you know, and you can't you can't just pick two numbers and, and calculate it out. So it'll be very interesting to see. I, I try to be an optimist, and I think that we've got a lot of smart people in our industry, and. And, you know, we've we've weathered a lot of booms and busts before that mm-hmm. were caused by a variety of other factors, so I'm very hopeful that we'll, as, as intelligent people, we can acknowledge that, hey, we've made some errors in the past, and we're going to have to change going forward.
0: Well, you actually did say something quite, uh, I think, revolutionary, because we are seeing this pivot. Something that's happening in your company is that it's not just the money people. You're bringing in engineers. You're bringing in teams, and mm-hmm. I think that's a pivot we've seen on who controls the money. You know, so is that something you're seeing across private equity because there are some uh i guess (laughs) spreadsheet gurus who would say that engineers aren't necessary but yet we're seeing more emphasis go back on the science of the project not just the decline of the project right i think so my company
1: is is fairly unique in that we uh we are very integrated between Our team and our leadership in New York that does the fundraising and then Mm -hmm. our team here in Denver that does the execution Mm -hmm. and so it really is a two-way street uh, of communication about what are the problems are these numbers real Uh, rather than sort of just getting from the the ivory tower that you know this is the number you have to hit (laughs) and then us just scrambling to find a way way to hit it so Mm -hmm. you know the the strategy is definitely at least for us has definitely been has been driven or at least influenced by some of the things that we're seeing from the operational level, and that can be service pricing, that can be you know pressure data, that can be all of the all of the things that engineers care about. And we're, we're really able to give some feedback to mm-hmm. our leadership and say, hey, this may or may not be the best strategy. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're fairly diversified. Um, we can be somewhat agnostic in terms of how we invest. We've done some some things in mineral funds, and that's, I think, fairly public knowledge that, yeah. that we're working in that space. I'm
0: seeing a lot more get into some minerals. Mm-hmm.
1: The, the minerals is interesting. Um, I think it's frankly, I think if you're, if you're starting it up today, you might be a little late to the space. I think minerals <laughs> are something that you had to start sneakily doing years and years in the, in the past. And some people have done it used it to be well. such
0: a private thing to do,
1: right? It was kind of hidden and, yeah. and now it's becoming a lot more of a strategy for some of these firms. But so we, we tend to stay somewhat diversified and you know, we're, we're willing to, to kind of try anything, go anywhere if it fits our model. And you know, our model is to return our value to our investors. And to do so within a timely manner and to not have a whole bunch of disasters along the way. So,
0: Well, to your point, actually, and the last thing about Pivot, because I think you've hit it quite well, um, but the exit strategies. Mm-hmm. So it used to be the two to five years. Now you're seeing three to seven, depending on you know which investment you're doing. But yet we're not seeing the uptick of the predicted $70 a barrel, $85 a barrel that we were expecting towards the end of Q2 going into December. How are exit strategies going to have to start changing? How is private equity? How is the money going to have to start adjusting to the those types of exit strategy? Uh, I guess demands because in, uh, the end goal is the investor,
1: right? And I think a lot of that is messaging between your private equity team and your investors. So, mm-hmm. you know, if we're if we're looking to exit by somebody coming in and you know being eaten by a bigger fish, quick, quick transaction, one mm-hmm. to three years then you know, they expect to see their money a little bit faster. If the strategy is to uh, aggregate smaller firms and build up a lar- larger acreage position and ultimately go public, mm-hmm. that's there's a time associated with that. There's a lot more work associated with that. And if your investment teams and your individual investors are aware that the turnaround on their time and their money is going to be longer um, and they're comfortable with that, you know, if they're not interested in that, then you might lose some of your investors, but that mm-hmm. might be appropriate. You would rather have money that you can actually turn around and and, and return back as you exactly. promised to do, <laughs> than to overpromise and underdeliver. So I think a lot of it's the messaging about here's who we are, here's what our strategy is, and here's how we expect to
0: exit. And we definitely overpromise, and a lot of the time I think we're proving we underdeliver yeah, as well. Yeah. What do you think about the death of shell? Do you, I mean, do you even agree with that that's happening right now? Cause I know we're at a pivot, but like that's a headline that's getting tossed around. So is Shell, it's what's happening in the Permian keeping our prices between that 50 to $55 mm-hmm. band, quite narrow band. Is Shell going to phase out of popularity Oh, it's possible. I don't see it happening in the immediate
1: future. You know, what's I think what's immediate future? Oh, five to ten years.
0: See, isn't that odd? Because basins typically have a, a I guess, a popularity of five to seven years, mm-hmm. and we're we're past that. We're
1: there. Yeah. Yeah. We're there. I think, um, and and again, I, I feel like I have to sort of say that this is not necessarily my area of expertise, but <laughs> but you know, historically things like horizontal drilling, things like fracking, things like slick water, some, some of these technological innovations um, have, have changed how we look at a lot of these basins. And I think that that's what you're gonna see happen mm-hmm. with a lot of these assets that are still, still have the ability to be prolific, but they have to be attacked a different way. Mm-hmm. I think it was, uh, you know, Van Kirk back at Mines who would say that, are we running out of uh, are we running out of reserves or are we running out of ideas? And so I think that that's something that you can certainly like apply <laughs> locally. Um, you know, I see a lot of these big ENPs and like the oxy acquisition, I think is a big one, but you're seeing these multinational oil and gas companies that are actually showing a lot of interest here domestically, which, mm-hmm. which surprised me initially because there are so many big fields that are offshore that are overseas. And yes. so for me, I'm like, maybe that's where, that's where we go next. Like that has to be what's next, but, but because of the geopolitical uh, challenges, because of the instability in some of those places, the domestic market remains more attractive for them. Mm-hmm. And again, speculating. but. My, my hope is that some of those companies put all of their engineers to task to say, how can we do this better? How can we touch what we've left here? You know, how, how can we change the precedent yet again? And instead of wine racks and giant slickwater jobs, is there, is there a different way? Is there a better way? Mm-hmm. And so that might help us uh, extend the life of shale here locally as we know it. But you know, as always, we'll move on. Well, do you
0: think they're going to start going back to the conventional?s to maybe enhanced recovery because that was a big thing early 90s, late 80s, and then it just kind of fell out of popularity. Mm-hmm. You know, the price is too expensive. But you well, can't tell that, me the price is right. too expensive when we're looking at some of the jobs we see in Texas. Right. So come on now.
1: Absolutely, absolutely <laughs> not. And I, and I don't know the answer to that. I think, you know, we can apply some of those technologies adapted to some of the unconventional?s that we've been mm-hmm. working to sort of get every last bit out of it. Mm-hmm. But going back to your, to your point, I mean, that it, the, uh, enhanced recovery stuff is expensive and we are a cost driven industry. And so if it, if it's not worth the squeeze, we won't do it. Even, even if it does get that last little bit out of there,
0: even if it is the right route, it's just, it's all economics. Well, it's interesting. Um, so, okay. I graduated, what, three years ago now? So I've been a reservoir engineer ever since. However, if I just wanted to walk up to a private equity firm or walk up to an analyst position on Wall Street, that's not really a possibility. As much as people want to say, oh, yeah, they'll hire us. You need some track record before Mm -hmm. they consider it. So for those looking for that next step, that next opportunity, and they want to follow kind of what your path was, how do they stand out? How are you not just the, you know, project driven engineer? How are you the innovative engineer?
1: Oh, that's a great question.
0: (laughs) Good. I think,
1: (laughs) I think, uh, I think in terms of, of making inroads into that world, it's a lot, and this is not just our business, but many, but it's a lot about your network and your Mm -hmm. connections
0: um, nepotism. And nepotism.
1: <laughs> but even more so than that, I think if you've got my dad works with this geologist who's a, who's a kid out of college school mines, and I don't know him personally, but my dad speaks very highly of him, and he's always got an idea and something new that we can try and that sort of thing. And, you know, he's sort of always talking through some of those ideas, and I know some other engineers who are, are ready to go work for themselves and who, mm-hmm. who want to get out of the big company. And, and I think part of the way that you start is by, you know, having those conversations with people, reaching out to people that started their own companies. There are a lot of people that you can find via LinkedIn that'll be happy to meet you for a beer, to tell mm-hmm. you war stories and things to do and things not to do. And even starting to informally make some of those connections and to hear those stories and to tell the story that you want to do can help guide your path in mm-hmm. terms of building your own strategy. I think you also want to start identifying uh, who's, who's going to be on your team.
0: Yeah. And who is your team?
1: Who is your team, and who who would you start a company with, and why? And the people that you want to start with, you need to trust with every last fiber of your being, because once you put your own money into a pile with theirs, you need to know that the choices that they make are going to be the choices for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. And everybody can be friends on a golf course or you know over a glass of wine. You
0: can always be that dewy-eyed engineer, yeah. but the reality is you need some swagger and you need something yeah, to back well, it
1: up. And you've got to have you've got to have. Um, I think you've got to have a strategy. I think, I don't know. I mean, I, I I haven't like really written my book yet on, on what that has to look like. I think you've got to have, you do have to have some swagger. And that's something that I kind of struggle with because I think that I've gotten a lot further with humility and, (laughs) and with asking questions and not being afraid to look dumb. I think that if you really want to jump into it, you've got to have You've, you've got to have the cojones. You've yeah. got to be a wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, you've got you've <laughs> to be willing to go for it. Um, you've got to have that ultimate uh, ultimate confidence. Uh, and, but, I, but I also think that a, a big piece of coming with that, because so many people have done this over recent years, there are resources that can teach our generation and, and people that are looking to just get started out what not to do. And I'm seeing a lot of startups right now in the tech space mm-hmm. in our business, uh, data analytics, and what, these guys are writing software and, and doing tracking and things that I'm just not capable of. And I love that they're out doing it because I think that there's a big gap in our industry for data analytics, cloud stuff, uh, machine learning, AI—all the things that are hitting the rest of the world seem to be coming late to oil and gas. Mm-hmm. And so, what I wonder a little bit in terms of the startup is it's less about finding the right asset and being two guys in a cell phone, and more so about where are the gaps in our business? Mm-hmm. What are what have we not what have we not taken into account? I mean, we are. Some of the worst. It's saying, "Well, God, we've always done it this way, so we should keep doing it this way." And what I see currently in a sp- and Denver's a great place for it. There's a lot of a lot there's of growth. There's a lot of it.
0: old here, but a lot of opportunity. A lot. There's
1: a lot of people that are that are saying, "Hey, there's a space for us to be to be incorporating machine learning into how we analyze our completions," mm-hmm. and they know how to write the software and build the program and the app and things like that. And it's it's such a great space that they're filling because we are behind in that and so i'm hoping that and i'm hoping that they kind of bring us up to speed but i think that that those are some of the avenues in which engineers could be looking is instead of instead of doing private equity instead of doing entrepreneurship you know the way it was done 10 years ago do it your own way do it with your skill set mm-hmm. and and find a need well find, it's not
0: always about being an entrepreneur to what did you call it earlier an in Entrepreneur.
1: and this is this what is does that mean so so entrepreneur is kind of like the sexy term for i'm gonna i'm gonna build a widget and i'm gonna start a subscription service mm-hmm. and i'm gonna and i'm gonna do whatever but I, or whatever service, like I that's you know it. it's it's <laughs> whatever you're thing is, but but I think uh, being an entrepreneur is sort of undervalued, and so what that means to me, and I you know don't have my um, perfect definition probably, but it means an exacting some of those changes inside of a company where you already work, mm-hmm. and this was something that we talked a little bit about uh, in grad school, was taking some of these concepts about you know, how, how can we, how might we, how might we do this differently? How might we do this better? And what I learned certainly on rigs and fracks is that the people that are closest to the job they're doing know what's wrong with it. Mm-hmm. They know what's broken on the rig. They know why we're too slow or they know, they know. And you have to engage those people to improve your operation. And then the willing same to way, ask the question, well, and be willing to speak up because yes. I think, you know, we look at some of these big public EMPs, and they've got, you know, the, the managers have their numbers that they have to hit. Well, you've got a number of completion engineers, drilling engineers, production engineers. Those We're people Not even know. just the
0: engineers. You've got field guys. Totally. You've got analysts. You've got pumpers. Yeah.
1: These, these guys know what's going on with the wells, and I think that they know why it's working or not working. Mm-hmm. And so as an engineer, you have to be willing to rock the boat. And mm-hmm. I know that there's not always a great path for that. There's not always an easy way to communicate that to your leadership, but the leadership is focused on whatever metrics management has determined. And instead of, as a completion engineer, pumping this job, because this is what you're told the number needs to be in terms of pounds per lateral foot, Mm -hmm. you know if that's being effective or not. Exactly. And so being an entrepreneur in that space means coming up with an alternative that you think could be cheaper or make your well better Mm -hmm. or a combination therein. And and be willing to be the squeaky wheel, and be willing to show that data, and and repeat again and again until you can get something that that changes it. And, exactly. And, and try someone to, to pay attention. Right. And get and create that change from the inside out. Stop waiting for Wall Street to ask for different metrics, or stop <laughs> waiting for shareholders to become activists and say, "Hey, I know we've been doing this wrong. Can mm-hmm. we try something different? Can we can we do something different?" And so that's that would be something I would want to challenge engineers to do at some of these big companies: is is don't just don't just kind of follow the marching orders you know we're you guys are smart people like let's let's change it from within
0: well there's also a statement out there and i don't know what it means to you but it says that oil has a millennial problem i don't necessarily disagree but i know what it means to me and a lot of people are trying to take this more progressive approach oh there's just gaps in education because of the ups and downs peaks and pits of this uh, industry itself I think there's more, there might be more of an enthusiasm, maybe a work ethic, maybe an alienating type persona that might mm-hmm. be out there. So I was curious to see if you thought that there was quote unquote, a millennial problem, maybe gaps in education, how to better, how to better manage that. Cause we oh, we're on a downturn.
1: Yeah, we are. I, I don't know. I don't know about the millennial problem. There's definitely, you know, the, the great crew change is, has sort of come and gone, but I've I definitely see that the ways of thinking that they're starting they're starting to change. I'm not sure what what technically we're calling the millennial problem. I think that what young people in the business have that they need to do, I guess a little differently is they that we've come up with a little bit different set of skills. Um, most people now don't necessarily start in the field. They don't necessarily. Yeah you know, they don't necessarily get dirty. I think it's a little bit criminal. And I think, I Mm -hmm. I agree. I think you learn so much being in the field. And I think once you actually have to spend time, you know, drinking red coffee and eating ruffles like three times (laughs) a day. Making the bacon. Yeah. Like (laughs) when you, when you have to live that way for a while, you really understand an appreciation for what's actually happening on your locations. Exactly. And, And we're still operating that way where you've got people doing the physical work. And so, to not have seen that, to not have appreciated that, I do, I do agree. There's, there's a gap there, um, and, but a lot of times on an individual level, you have to take it upon yourself to educate mm-hmm. and, and to expand your view on it.
0: Be a proactive member. Be, a, be a
1: proactive member. But I think that millennials, instead of, um, I think that, they have to take the skill sets that they have and bring it to the industry, and mm-hmm. that goes back to the data analytics and some of that stuff. The way in which we analyze and do everything online and expect instant return on information, Mm -hmm. we have to demand that from our industry too. And you know, one of the examples that I, that I use a lot in terms of this is that I know a lot of companies are doing basically remote directional drilling, right? And Mm -hmm. so they're not, they don't have, you know, they're, they're taking three to four guys off of, a location, mm-hmm. and they're saying we can re- we can look at this from a computer. This is geometry <laughs> and trig. Like we know what our outputs are going to be, and we can and we have the technology mm-hmm. to be able to do this from afar. And yet, there remains a pushback that says, "Well, but you kind of need a guy to look at it." And It's like, "Well, do you?" You know, and so so being open to some of those changes, and I think that that's the power of millennials mm-hmm. is is not being scared of the technology and not being hesitant to try something different. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think that the millennials really have to have to speak up a little bit more and, and to bring that to the industry. And hopefully to marry together the importance of actually seeing the field, actually getting dirty, actually understanding how the work is done, but then also bringing to bear some of the more sophisticated tools that we have in our our world now and Mm -hmm. and applying those to our industry.
0: And it's not really just a female perspective. It's not really just a male perspective. It's anyone with a common sense and some acumen Mm -hmm. be able to ask the question. Yeah, absolutely. So million dollar question, what's the next big play?
1: Oh God. <laughs> I'm hoping because I need in, to go
0: buy some houses and some acreage. Right, some
1: acreage. I'm hoping it's something like Hawaii. Like we need, we need a, we need to play in a place that's like somewhat like beautiful to be around and live maybe, in. Maybe right. Right
0: around a ski resort.
1: Yeah. Right. Something, <laughs> something like that. But, um, I, I honestly don't know. I couldn't even speculate. I've, you know, we look at geology, geologically, excuse me, like source rock and kind of identifying some legacy plays that maybe haven't been tapped into. Mm -hmm. Um, some of that is operationally very challenging. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at near offshore, like Louisiana, um, some of that Gulf stuff that, that has been, that has eaten drillers lunch for years Some of the Tuscaloosa (laughs) marine shale stuff and some of that deeper stuff. I know that people have talked about, but it also, when, when I talk to Other ops people about it, they kind of get a Mm shudder, and so you know, it's the next big play can have you know massive productivity, but it has to also be operationally feasible, secretly hoping
0: secretly hoping that the next big boom happens right out of Mississippi. Yeah, that's where I'm from. Home sweet home. Yeah, or North Dakota now, now Mississippi. Yeah, absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. Well, you're pretty busy, so. You wake up in the morning, you're running all these crews. I mean, you were on the phone right before we were talking, getting everything straight. So how do you stay organized, productive? Do you have a morning routine? What time do you wake up? How do you manage your day so that you can actually get stuff done instead of being a slave to Fires.
1: So I'm very much a work in progress with respect to this. Um, I've tried a few different methodologies. I do try to be routine based. Um, I live by my calendar like a lot of people Mm -hmm. and they say, you know, pay yourself first, meaning that you get your paycheck and you put money into savings right away. Because if you say that you're going to save whatever you have left over, lo and behold, you don't. And my time, time is the same way. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that means for me putting my workouts on the calendar a week in advance, I've actually started, I've taken into the habit of putting white space on my calendar because otherwise I will have an activity every night of the week, and so it,
0: you block something.
1: I block something out, and mm-hmm. I can call it a date with myself, or white space, or whatever you <laughs> want to call it, um, just to just to recharge. Because otherwise, I will just fill that time. Um, I do have something of a routine. I, I'm usually up at 4:35 in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, my phone is never more than probably a foot from me, which I know is a terrible habit, but. Um, always look at the operations first. We do have a rig running right now. So see where the rig's at, what's mm-hmm. going on. Have we had problems? Usually if there's problems, you didn't have a full night of sleep, but <laughs> kind of making sure everything's squared away with that, uh, get a workout first thing in the morning. Uh, and then you kind of feel that if, and, and I have a to-do list, I've just started bullet journaling, which is bullet I, journaling. Bullet is journaling it's, um, I, I couldn't speak about it too intelligently, but it's the bullet journal method and it's a way of capturing a to-do list, a shopping list. Um, your goals for the year. So a is great it like quote. a priority? It is. It's uh, it's, it's a, it's meant to be a mind dump that okay. you can come back to. And so I, I do keep that. And that's a way for me to, to manage some of the tasks I've got going on mm-hmm. and at least track where I'm at with everything. Because to your point, you know, if, if something happens at 11 in the morning, that might wipe out the rest of your day. Mm-hmm. So, so the agenda that you had carefully crafted sort of gets thrown out the window. So I've been, I've been trying that. I've, like I said, I've tried a few different methodologies, but um, I try to, for me, getting a workout every day is absolutely my sanity check. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sleep a little bit as well, but, but really if, if I can keep a few of those pillars, you know, I think everybody has to decide for themselves what those two or three things are that as long as I've got, you know, as long as I've eaten something and I've gotten a workout <laughs> that day, I feel like I can chal- I can take about anything and, and for everybody it's different. I think it's, we, we are so, so quickly distracted in our world now. Um, and it's hard to turn off. And for some of us, you have to be answering your cell phone, right? Mm-hmm. So so turning it off and putting it in a drawer so you can work on a task isn't really an option. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody has to manage it a little bit differently, but anytime I can you know, close my door and actually sit down and focus on a task without mm-hmm. distractions. That seems to help me a lot. Routine helps. Uh, we can't always have routine, but the, mo- time I can, I can uh, automate something like the gym,
0: mm-hmm.
1: meals, stuff like that, then that helps the rest of things to go smoothly.
0: Do you have any guilty pleasures? I know you use the gym to decompress, but is mm-hmm. there anything else that you think, uh, is unique about, (laughs) Um, about your day to day?
1: You know, probably, probably not about my day to day in terms of, in terms of guilty pleasures. I do have to kind of, I try to get up and walk around here and there. The other thing that I, that I do feel guilty about, but I'm getting better on is just taking time. Mm -hmm. And that can be a Tuesday to go skiing or even a vacation. And I, I'm still learning after this long in the business that, You know, if you put that you're going to be gone for the week and you're traveling somewhere, you just have, you just have to schedule it. Like there's no, there's no way to guess when things are really going to be busy or Mm -hmm. really going to be slow. So you put on the calendar and then you have to commit to do it because I've been on plenty of trips or plenty of times where I'm still very much engaged in my email and I'm still available. And you know, the, there's a saying that the graveyard is full of uh, indispensable people. And you know, as soon as, as <laughs> I soon love as, that. and so I've definitely had moments where I'm like, oh my God, if I don't answer this phone call, then nothing's going to happen. And as it turns out, it does. Mm-hmm. Like As it turns out, the job gets done anyway. Yeah. And so, you know, and again, a humility pull where it's like, yeah, they don't actually need you. Like, so it's, you know, you can. <laughs> Isn't it's, that the worst? <laughs> it's it's kind of the worst, but it's also the best. It's yes. very liberating to mm-hmm. be able to go, you know what? I'm not answering my phone for the next two days. So, and you know, in, in operations, you set it up and they'll call somebody else and it's fine, but it's, it's a little bit liberating to go, Hey, Mm -hmm. like you're a person too. And, and you're not going to be of much value if you're worn out and you're burned out and you haven't slept well and you haven't decompressed in in weeks and months. So exactly. Like I said, work in progress. It's a
0: big world. And most of us have seen very little of it. So go
1: see it. Yeah.
0: Is there a book podcast or other resource you would recommend that has brought value to you?
1: Um, I just finished, uh, God, is it better, faster, stronger? I'm, I'm working through, we've got a list of probably a hundred plus books that were recommended to us during uh, business school that we just hadn't had time to read. So I, that one I thought was really good. I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to a lot of stuff. I think I can't think of one off the top of my head that I think is like a, a be all end all. I, my recommendation on that would be diversify mm-hmm. as much as you can what you're listening to. Um, I've been trying to read, uh, the Warren Buffett, um, the snowball one of his books for like a decade and it is a hard read. Like I I prefer (laughs) like fiction and and silly stuff like that. Um, but I think something that grad school really taught me was that getting to meet a lot of people that come from different backgrounds and different specialties helped me with how I saw my own problems and how I saw, you know, my industry problems or whatever else. Mm -hmm. And it was really, really powerful and impactful in how in, in, in opening my mind and learning new things, and so you know that I don't. So I try to read some business books and I read some fiction. Mm-hmm. I just finished uh, *The Boys in the Boat*, which is a, *The Boys in the Boat*. It's it's a World War II. It's it's a true story. It's about this rowing team um out of Washington. And so it's got sports and it's Who's got the author? Um oh gosh, it's sitting right over there. Oh, it actually might be in the other pile, but. It's on the other table over there, but, um, (laughs) but no, it's, it's, uh, it's one that my grandpa recommended to me years ago and I finally finished it. So I just, I listen to 99% invisible, which is a podcast and it's about design, which is not something that I get to do a whole lot of it, you know, like the design of like, uh, buildings and and roads and things like that. And again, it's, it's not directly related to what I do for a living, but it really, it makes you think Mm -hmm. and every so often you get a little, a little thought or a little idea that you can't apply. And Mm -hmm. so I just try to, do as much different, you know, different types of reading, some for fun, some for serious as possible.
0: That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much. You have brought such value today and insight into not only private equity, but how to move forward and how to, you know, just organize your career itself. And I could not thank you more for taking oh, the time. No,
1: I love it. Thank you so much for having me. I love what you're doing.
0: <laughs> thank you. All right, guys. What did you think about Amanda's story? Damn good feedback and insights, right? I swear, I left that interview smarter because of her. Anyway, if you have any thoughts or questions for Amanda, you can shoot them to me via Facebook, Instagram, or through the website at www.thecrudeaudacity.com. Let me know she is on the books for a follow-up interview where we will be addressing your comments, questions, and so much more. All right, guys, before you go, if today's episode brought you any sort of value, please rate, review, and subscribe. The more five stars we get, the more often we're able to deliver quality content from industry influencers. And as always, if you have a topic or influencer you would like us to feature, you can get in touch with us via Facebook, Instagram, or at our website, www.thecrudaudacity.com. We greatly appreciate your engagement and until next week, give them hell.